Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about the Western Balkans. It's over 25 years since the hapless former Luxembourgish foreign minister said that the hour of Europe has come as the Balkans descended into chaos and into killing fields and Europe stood by powerless to influence events on the ground. This relative peace and development in the Balkans has been one of the unspoken success stories of European integration over the last few years. But today, if you look at the Balkans, what you see is a picture of political stagnation and chaos and a return of other powers to the region. In Macedonia, there has been an election which has resulted in a political stalemate and thugs attacked the parliament as they tried to elect a new speaker. And it's unclear how that country is going to go forward and form a new government in Serbia. People took to the streets after a presidential election, which was also uh, much contested. In Bosnia, there has been further fragmentation and a sense of total political deadlock. And in Montenegro, a failed coup. Amongst all of these worrying trends, the European Union is increasingly just one of the powers that is paying attention to the region. We are seeing the Chinese playing a more and more active role, reaching out and offering economic development to these countries. Turkey has returned to the site of the Ottoman Empire and is playing on ancient links with some of the different uh, players within the region. And when we travelled to the region recently, we heard many people talking about Russia's involvement which had some echoes of the old calls about ethnic violence, which was the only way that they could get the international community to sit up and and pay attention to what was happening in these countries. To help me make sense of what is going on in the Balkans and what it means for European foreign policy, we have two senior policy fellows from ECFR. First up is Frederick Westlau, who is the director of the Wider Europe programme at ECFR. And secondly, returning to the podcast again, is Vesela Chanova, who is joining me from Sofia and is the Senior Director for Programmes at ECFR. We have all just returned from a trip to the region where we spent some time in Macedonia trying to understand what was going on in this political crisis. But we also travelled to Serbia, where we met with the president and some of the other key opposition parties and candidates, as well as civil society observers. Frederick, why don't you start off and and tell um, us what we found when we went to Macedonia? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we we found a a country in a a very deep crisis. Uh, This crisis, of course, started two years ago with the so-called wiretapping scandal. Um, Wiretaps of... 26,000 people um, were leaked, uh, and it became evident to everyone that that the government had been um, basically surveying um, journalists, uh, politicians, activists, 
um, in a very extensive way. Um, I mean, this, of course, uh, sparked a, a political crisis that has been dragging on since, since then. Um, at one point, the EU uh, intervened and actually helped uh, facilitate an agreement that included um, new elections and also the appointment of a, a special prosecutor to look into uh, some of the possible crimes coming to light with, with the wiretaps um, being leaked. Um, elections were then finally held in December last year, um, and this led to the Social Democrats and the Albanian parties uh, receiving a majority. Um, but what happened then was that uh, the president, President Ivanov from Vimro, he refused to give them a mandate uh, to form a new government. And um, this um, really deepens um, the, the, the state of crisis in, in Macedonia. And there's been a very sort of tense deadlock uh, ever since. So when we visited in mid-April, um, the, the atmosphere in, in Macedonia was, of course, uh, very tense. Um, there were VMRO supporters protesting on the streets. Um, VMRO parliamentarians were also filibustering um, the election of a new speaker in the parliament. Uh, by the Social Democrats and the Albanian parties. And there was also fairly inflammatory rhetoric accusing the Albanian parties of colluding with, um, with Tirana. Um, and then sort of the, the specter of Greater Albania was, was being used um, by, by many of the, the leaders. Um, I mean, since, uh, since our trip to Macedonia, the, the crisis has actually um, turned violent. I mean, at the end of April, we saw protesters storm the parliament and beat up uh, parliamentarians from the Social Democratic Party and, and the Albanian Party after they finally managed to elect uh, a new speaker. So, I mean, overall, um, Macedonia is a sort of a highly destabilized and it's a very, uh, very difficult uh, situation. So that's quite a, a, a detailed description of what's going on. And I'd love to hear a bit more, Vesa, about why you uh, think many international observers are in favor of a change of government. But before we do that, maybe you could explain why this matters. I mean, it's a pretty tiny country. Um, you know, two million people is not uh, a war. It's sort of reasonably stable compared to the way that it's uh, been before. I mean, why should the, the European Union, a time when Syria is up in flames and we've got all sorts of problems with Turkey and there's, there's a Brexit and, uh, you know, French elections going on, why should people be focused on Macedonia? First of all, because Macedonia was the first country in the Western Balkans to get the candidate status back in 2005. Um, and where it is now basically shows um, how much a country can backslide uh, both um, due to how much uh, the EU is paying attention and how much it is willing really to give to those countries in terms of perspective, but also how much those countries themselves are willing to reform. So Macedonia is a, you know, a sad example because uh, one third almost of its population has left the country in the past decade. And some of them are really the best and the brightest. And this is a trend that is valid uh, for the whole uh, region. And also, you know, problems like this uh, show that uh, the international community, which was basically the EU and the US after the Yugoslav wars, um, who were setting an, setting an example and were f supporting the transitions and the reforms of those countries, 
those actors uh, seems to have really lost leverage or be entirely gone, uh, as a result of which uh, you have old animosities flaring up again. You have uh, Albanians talking about... So the Albanians make up about a quarter of the population, don't they? And the, most people are sort of uh, Slavs in Macedonia. But you have other groups like Turks and uh, Serbs and Romani, but the only really big... Uh, minority which is politically organized to the uh, Albanians. Uh, yes, and they also have other political territories where they can uh, relate to. So uh, in in this case, it's about Kosovo, it's about Albania, it's about the Albanian Prime Minister Rama going around, spending a lot of time in Kosovo, talking about the future of Macedonia, talking about the future of the Albanian community, as such in the Balkans, but also you have neighboring Serbia, uh, which also has tensions with Albania um, and has now uh, obviously been uh, um, in a tricky situation given that Macedonians uh, even want to abstain about a future vote on the membership of Kosovo in, in, in UNESCO. Uh, which, by the way, they supported the last time around when this vote happened. So we can see how those uh, small countries, as you say, which altogether are not more than 20 million, all those small Western Balkan countries are interlinked, their problems are in a way similar, and they um, also feed on each other against the background of a larger Western absence. Okay. So I'd like to go uh, into much more detail about that larger Western absence, but why don't we um, dwell a bit on the, the kind of internal politics in Macedonia, because I think it is maybe a good illustration of both what the EU can do and what it can't do and, and what's happening. Um, Frederick, why is it that most West, well, certainly the, the European Union and the, and the United States want there to be a, a change of power in Macedonia, because the election produced what looks like a dead heat. You got almost identical numbers of votes for the VMRO party, which you were talking about before, which is the the, the centre right party um, and the, the the socialist bloc, uh, respectively, led by um, by Gurevsky and, and Zayev. We we met the two of them now, and then the Albanian parties hold the balance of power in the parliament. But why um, does the West think that? there should be a, a, a socialist-led government? Well, I, I think primarily it is because um, the, the Social Democrats and the Albanian parties um, have a majority of, of seats in, in, the, in the assembly. So, you know, if, if, you, if you respect the constitutional democratic process, they should be the ones to, to, to form the government. And then also, I mean, the, the background is, of course, that, um, as I mentioned, you had the wire tapping scandal with um, VMRO very much sort of behind behind this scandal. So the, the, the party uh, and the government doesn't have a lot of uh, credibility in, 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 the eyes of, in the eyes of the West. But this is essentially about respecting um, the democratic process and, and the majority. So why has it been impossible for, the, for Zayev and the Social Democrats to form this government? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, the, the the president, the VMRO president, President Ivanov, who's been uh, blocking this. I mean, he's refusing to give a mandate to the Social Democrats and uh, and Albanian coalition to to actually uh, to actually form a government. Um, and they've used various means. I mean, they've been 
filibustering in the parliament um, for for weeks uh, to to block the appointment of or the election of a, a speaker of the parliament. I mean, this actually happened last week, and and what followed was the storming of the parliament and, and the violence, of course. But you know, they they're they're extremely keen to 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 block the formation of a new government, and their game is to draw out this crisis and force um, new elections. And they believe that with new elections, they might be able to muster uh, a majority and uh, could then sort of form uh, form a government again. So, Vesler, Macedonia is trying to get into the European Union. The one thing you hear from all the party leaders, we heard it from Goreski, from Zayev, from everyone we met, was that they want to be in the European Union. Um, and uh, the EU's the biggest financial propper up of, of Macedonia. We give hundreds of millions of, uh, of euros to Macedonia. Um, why are we so powerless to persuade them to respect their constitution and to have this handover of power that Frederick was talking about? First of all, we have the same phenomenon um, elsewhere, including within the European Union. I mean, the phenomenon of a leader who drives sovereignist politics, uh, who puts media, free media under pressure and uh, tries to drive out civil society organizations uh, or close them down for that matter. Um, We have also in the EU in the face of Mr. Orban. So um, it's very difficult for us, I think, politically and morally to to give the Western Balkans lectures on how they should govern themselves. Uh, Secondly, our help for Macedonia financially uh, is, I think, around 80 million, which is not huge. I mean, it's substantial, but it's not something they could not live without. And yet um, it is um, the European Commission who published a very harsh report and nothing resulted after it. Those uh, millions that uh, the EU pays to support the Macedonian infrastructure, reforms, uh, twinning processes, have not been uh, in any way affected by that harsh report, uh, which means that um, even the, you know, the tools that we have at hand, we really don't use them. Um, there have been calls by member states to disinvite um, the Macedonian foreign minister from the recent informal Gimnich meeting of the European foreign ministers, uh, which could not happen. There was no political will to do that. So, you know, even the, the, the cheapest, very symbolic things we do not do. And uh, um, from that perspective, I understand uh, Mr. Gruevsky and others who feel that the EU puts them rhetorically under pressure, but does not do much more than that. So I'd like to come on to this bigger question in a second, but, but maybe just before we do that, Frederick, what do you think the European Union could do now in Macedonia? Well, um, yeah, before answering that, just let me add a couple of, of points to, to what Vesla said. I think also there's an inherent problem when it comes to Macedonia and the accession process, and that's the, the name dispute that Macedonia has with Greece. I mean, Macedonia became a candidate country in 2005, but um, hasn't been able to start uh, negotiations um, because Greece has, has blocked this uh, because of the, the name dispute, um, and the same with, with um, NATO membership. So, 
I mean, the accession process, which is sort of supposed to provide an incentive, hasn't really been been working uh, in, in, in Macedonia. And then secondly, from the perspective of some of the individual leaders, um, they may not have a personal incentive to move forward on, on the reforms that, um, that EU accession actually requires, such as strengthening the rule of law and, and governance and, and, uh, and so on. I mean, corruption is, is a big issue in, in Macedonia and, uh, and, and the region. But in terms of what, what, what the EU should be doing, I mean, I, I think it's important um, that the EU recognizes that the accession paradigm uh, is, is, is limited in terms of its, uh, its impact um, and, and the EU should take much sort of firmer and more, more intrusive uh, action. Um, I mean, there is, there is some talk about um, individual sanctions, but we're quite uh, far from that. And there's always the question of, you know, when, when is it uh, the right time? What are the conditions for the EU to actually use sanctions. But I think when we get into the territory of politicians inciting um, ethnic violence, then, you know, then this is a discussion that, that really needs to, to be had. Um, other actions could include, um, you know, political um, isolation of, 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 some of, of some of the leaders. I mean, uh, Vesela mentioned uh, Gimnish. But here as well, I mean, this is very indicative because um, the EU is, is not... Um, uh, it's is a split on on some of these measures. There are some member states who who um, are reluctant uh, for for the European Union to actually sort of go down the road of of um, sticks, basically. Okay. So, investor, can you maybe um, lift our sights a bit above Macedonia and look at this at this bigger picture? Um, the Balkans was a part of Europe where where the European project was tested to its limits when ethnic violence returned uh, sort of genocide and, and, and the whole region is best known by its killing fields like Srebrenica. The war in Kosovo was also something which completely changed the way that many countries thought about the use of violence, particularly Germany, which uh, had to... Um, bury some of its past um, reluctance to, to 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 use military force in order to to create peace, um, and uh, and now again um, the Balkans are testing the idea of of, of, of Europe and, and and the European Union. I think it's quite likely that the Russians um, are going to test NATO and the European Union's resolve um, in these countries. Uh, we are also uh, confronting the, the limits of public acceptance of enlargement. Uh, you know, one of the big drivers of the, the Brexit vote was an anti-enlargement sentiment by the British people, which we've seen uh, defining politics in, in many other countries. We saw the, the vote against uh, the association agreement with Ukraine in the Netherlands. Um, it seems, therefore, very unlikely that the enlargement is going to happen anytime soon for, for, for these different uh, countries. So how does the EU adapt to this different environment where these countries are more contested, where nationalism seems to be uh, returning and is taking on an anti-EU sentiment um, and where public opinion in many European countries is against the main tool that we've had to engage with the Balkans, namely enlargement? Well, I think there are several ways to think about it. Um, I think some of the foreign ministries in the EU 
are hoping that the positive momentum created by the Dutch elections and by the French elections, hopefully, is going to make the discussion about enlargement possible again. Um, yet, no matter whether we agree with that assessment or not, I think what is clear is that the whole enlargement process and the whole enlargement narrative has to be a totally different one. Um, if it if it uh, takes place and if the word the word is used at all, I think um, what people will be talking about more and more uh, will be a place for the Western Balkans in a much looser um, union. Um, that would be probably the place of a of a further periphery that uh, where we seem to be appreciating stability more than the quality of democracy. I mean, we see it already now. Uh, Mrs. Merkel endorsed Mr. Vucic right before the elections in Serbia, um, which is something that, um, let's say, did not really impress um, the, um, the others who were running against him and the opposition and the young people in Serbia who actually did not want to have a continuation of that rule, or at least wanted to be represented somewhat um, in that political landscape. So I think um, this this way of looking at the Balkans is obviously uh, changing and will change uh, very significantly um, in the future. Much more um, will be much more transactional, much more, um, as I said, stability oriented. At the same time, we see a core in the EU which is profiting, you know, which has been profiting from that migration. Um, and, and the migration issue, I think, is uh, needs to be highlighted here. Those people from the Western Balkans moving uh, into the EU and feeding um, to an extent, at least, to a small extent, probably, but still, the growth in places like Germany, like Holland and so on. So what do we do with that periphery where you have a very bad demography and very pessimistic expectation for the future? And I think um, those. Um, this is why the, the core, whatever uh, it is in the future, uh, the EU core is going to have to pay attention in a different way, in a much more honest way, without saying... Um, oh, you know, we believe you're like us, because obviously nobody believes that Macedonia is like Holland. But uh, but but trying to help those societies really uh, improve uh, um, the conditions for people who want to stay there, who want to work there, and, uh, and in a way bring the relationship with the EU to the place where it has to be, namely a relationship of... Uh, very good partner, somebody who really uh, you trade with, uh, you travel to, your kids live in, uh, but uh, you understand that there are limits to that. And uh, uh, those limits um, are basically on both sides. So, Frederick, you worked quite a lot in the Balkans over the years, and particularly in some of the countries that have, have, have been most affected by ethnic conflict like Kosovo. I mean, how much danger do you think there is of that, the past be, becoming the future of uh, 
of these countries and of violence actually returning or is it more that we're going to see messy um unstable governance corruption uh organized crime um and uh you know sort of low level instability well i i think that the risk of um interesting violence returning on on a, on a on a big scale to the western balkans is is always there and we shouldn't sort of assume that oh because um uh you know these these countries are candidate countries and we have a membership perspective and and uh, uh we we can sort of leave it at that i think this is a little bit the mistake that that the European Union and and the US for that matter has has made in the, in the past few years that we've sort of assumed that that the region is is on track and and things are moving forward and and the the the, the wars the sort of interethnic um conflicts are, are slowly but surely resolving themselves uh, I, th- i think this is a this is a big mistake i mean the, the case of macedonia is quite um telling as well where we see how an essentially political conflict um is is moving towards uh becoming a, an interethnic conflict because some of the political leaders are willing to play the the ethnic card there and um you know i think we see this risk uh, in other parts of of the western balkans as, as well so there's there's definitely need to be very vigilant um when when it comes to um managing or, or resolving the the, the outstanding uh, conflicts and uh Uh, in in the Western Balkans, and in particular, um, you know, it, it's it's important to realize that there's still a number of status issues that haven't been resolved in 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 the Western Balkans, and and these also um, obviously go hand in hand with with uh, interethnic uh, relations. I mean, you have um, Kosovo's uh, independence not being recognized by 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 Serbia, and this is not only an unresolved status issue of Kosovo; it's also an unresolved status issue for for Serbia, I, I would say, and to some extent. Um, you know the, the the Dayton arrangement that we have in in Bosnia yes it sort of ended the war in 95 but it's still uh, an impediment for the country to actually move forward and 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 reform and become a in inverted commas a normal um, country and then the Macedonia name dispute is also another unresolved uh, status issue so maybe best I'll come to you for the last word on on this you um sitting in Bulgaria which was always a country that was much less developed and much less western orientated than Yugoslavia during the cold war how does it how does it look to you when you look out and some of your neighbors are in the european union uh, some are struggling uh, to get in and look like they might never get in and and are going through the kind of political chaos that that we uh, we saw in in macedonia a long time ago it must be over a decade ago now you uh, ra- um, ran this big international commission on on the balkans which was chaired by um uh, juliana armato i think um yes. with, uh, with our colleague ivan krestev as well um it feels like it might be time for another big rethink like that i mean what's your kind of personal reflection um on on where we're at and what kinds of things we should be thinking about now i think First of all, there is a big difference, obviously, between Bulgaria and those countries, which for the first time in many decades is to the benefit of Bulgaria. Uh, You're right. Um, In the the Yugoslav times, uh, obviously, the balance uh, was on the the western side of our border. But um, in a way, I I couldn't help uh, help it uh, thinking that... um, 
Bulgaria could have been uh, like Macedonia if it wasn't for the EU membership, uh, simply because this um, tendencies uh, not to be able to do a peaceful transfer of power. They're very human, but also they're um, well spread across the region. We don't need to uh, mention other leaders uh, in the region, uh, including uh, Turkey in this sense. So in a way, it is not a great state of affairs. Uh, for a place like Bulgaria, we, we used to say we want to be the island of stability, but actually being an island in the region <laughs> uh, where everybody else is unstable is not great. And and this is, I think, the, the big lesson that uh, the whole region moves uh, in a way together and falls together. And the migration issue affects all of us. The economic issue affects all of us. And uh, the European framework is what really makes the difference. And the question is, uh, what kind of framework will the EU be looking at from now on to make that uh, part of the continent, which uh, is small and really not that much of a weight to be lifted, um, to make it more prosperous and, uh, and more democratic? And we have started talking too much about stability, I find, lately. Uh, democracy is a word that we do not want to pay that much attention to. And I think the quality of democracy uh, is something that long-term pays off. And uh, if the EU really wants to be more political uh, in this region, it, this will be part of it, caring more about uh, how democracy is really exercised. Okay, well, that's a challenging note to end on. I think we should definitely return to this and, and have a another podcast where we look much more specifically at what the different elements of a European strategy can be at a time when enlargement is losing its credibility within many of the Balkan countries and is being pushed back at by many political parties within Western Europe and the existing EU member states. But for now, we have just one thing left to do on this podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. Frederick, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I just finished a great little book by uh, Timothy Snyder called uh, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And I don't know if this is a first, but this book began as a Facebook post that uh, Timothy Snyder posted after the election of, of Trump. Um, and then he turned it into a, a short book or a pamphlet, basically, on how to counter tyranny. And it has some uh, great, very practical advice on, on, on how to do this. And, you know, for example, do not give in in advance and defend institutions and stand out, set an example. And, and he even goes into how we should read more books and use the Internet less in order to sort of fight the, the specter of tyranny. So uh, I, I highly recommend that everybody picks up this book and, and, and reads it. Great. What about you, Vesla? I want to recommend here a book um, by um, an author who writes about Yugoslavia, but in a very nice uh, way. It's literature. Uh, her name is Dubravko Grešić. And um, there are a number of books uh, that one could uh, mention. There is one which is about uh, fables of Yugoslav, Yugoslav communism. Great. 
So I've been started reading a book by uh, a good friend of mine, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's the, the president and CEO of the New America Foundation. And before that was uh, head of policy planning at the U.S. State Department. And it's called The Chessboard and the Web. And is a very, very interesting and thought provoking description of this sort of uh, bifurcated world that we're living in. That On the one hand is a, a geopolitical stress uh, chessboard where uh, great powers battle it out against each other, but is also this interconnected space with social media and the internet where um, individuals are empowered to take on states and where you have all sorts of different dynamics uh, emerging. And she's somebody who's written and thought about networks for a long period of time and has tried to bring this together into a, to a coherent new strategy. That brings this podcast to an end. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, please make sure that you tell your friends and family and colleagues and other people that you know or don't know about it by giving us a review or a ranking on iTunes. That would be much appreciated as it seems to drive a lot of traffic towards uh, our podcast. And uh, you can also tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page. And if you have any comments for me, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Frederick Westlau, Vesta Chanova, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Bolin Doeming. <laughs>